Uh, Let's come to God and ask for his help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please help us now as we come to your word. Uh, Tonight we'll be thinking about a topic that can be awkward to discuss. Uh, So please give me grace to preach your word with clarity and to apply it thoughtfully so that your people here at Bundy might be equipped to think helpfully on the topic of sex. Uh, Please grow us in faith and godliness so that our lives might be conformed to Christ more and more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I think that one of the big misconceptions about Christianity in the Bible is that it's all pretty down or negative on sex. Don't do it. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Uh, Growing up, most of the kids in my country state school assumed that Christians were basically like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Um, Ned is the neighbour of The Simpsons family and is depicted as a kind of overly friendly, friendly, entirely prudish, church-going man. Ned is so prudish that he can't even say the word sex out loud, even when there are no children in sight. Instead, he has to spell the word out, S-E-X. Now, things may be changing, but I suspect that many Aussies still assume that Christianity and the Bible think of sex a little bit like Ned Flanders, something a bit negative, a bit embarrassing, a bit off-limits in public discussion. Uh, But what is striking about the passage before us tonight is just how unashamed and unembarrassed God's word is about speaking, what uh, God's word is to speak about sex as a good thing. Uh, the Apostle Paul does not kind of sheepishly spell out the word S-E-X to the Corinthians. He explains clearly to them that sex within the proper context of marriage is a good and helpful thing. And we need to hear Paul's words tonight because I think we can actually be a little bit uh, like Ned Flanders, uh, more than we'd like to admit, perhaps. I think for many of us there is a reluctance, uh, even an embarrassment, to talk about sex because we find the topic entirely awkward and embarrassing. Uh, Even married couples can find talking about this aspect of their marriage uh, just cringy, basically. But God wants us, both married and unmarried, to spend some time thinking biblically about sex. He wants us to see why it is such a good and necessary thing within the covenant of marriage. You see, if we fail to engage with God on the topic of sex, we actually do ourselves a disservice. We do our spouse a disservice if we're married, and we potentially do our future spouse, if we get married later, a disservice. So in order to do justice to this text, I just want to spend some time thinking about the context and the big misconception about sex that had developed in Corinth. Then I want to spend the bulk of our time looking at Paul's kind of corrective about sex within marriage and then finally conclude by looking at his counsel to the unmarried. So that's how we're going to approach uh, these nine verses tonight. So first, Paul addresses the big misconception that had developed about sex in the Corinthian church. Uh, Some were making the claim within that community of believers 
that sex in every circumstance was to be avoided. And you kind of see it uh, spelled out there in verse 1. Now for the matters he wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, something that this phrase in verse 1 is kind of Paul declaring his own opinion on the matter. Uh, but I think it's better to understand this verse as Paul quoting what some in the church were saying. Uh, hence, I agree with the quotation marks placed in uh, many of your Bibles and up there on the screen too in the CSB. Um, as in chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul took a popular saying from some in the church, he does that here, I think, and he takes that popularized misconception and critiques it. He holds it up against the light of God's truth and the gospel. It, it's kind of like Paul's saying in verse 1, okay, so you guys say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Well, let's think about that for a minute. But what's at the actual issue with the view? Uh, where's the actual controversy there? I mean, hasn't Paul just, for the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, which Neil preached on a few weeks ago, hasn't he just been telling the church to avoid all sorts of uh, sexual immorality? Hasn't be, he been telling them to be chaste in their lives? Uh, isn't this quote kind of suggesting the same kind of principle? Well, no, actually. You see, those in the celibacy camp in Corinth weren't just applying this to illicit sex outside of marriage, which would be correct. They were applying celibacy to sex within marriage, to the marriage context. Uh, we know this because Paul directs all his following comments to married couples, encouraging them not to apply such a principle in their own lives and relationships. We see that in the verses following, verses uh, 2 to 6. And so I just want you to imagine for a moment that that point of view was being taught here at Bundy. Imagine going to one of our uh, marriage tune-up courses with your spouse, or if you're single, a kind of hypothetical spouse, and hearing one of our pastors say in the first session, all right, guys, one of the best things you can do as a Christian married couple is to stop having sex. Do you think that is a message you'd instinctively want to buy into? Uh, maybe some would, but I expect that for many couples, that teaching would be about as welcome as flies at a barbie. So why was it that some in the Corinthian church had kind of bought into the idea that celibacy in marriage was a good thing. I mean, some must have taken that position or Paul wouldn't have felt it necessary to actually write about this. Well, there are a few different explanations um, on this, but the one I think is uh, most compelling is that abstinence in marriage may have kind of been considered a mark of true spiritual zeal. Uh, we know the Corinthians struggled with pride, spiritual pride. Paul has to pull them up on that in chapter 4. Uh, they desired to look strong, wise, super spiritual. Abstinence in marriage may have been one way to prove their devotion to God. Uh, and there have been other examples in church history where people have taken good gifts of God, like sex or like food or friendship or even their own personal health, and rejected them in the name of spiritual zeal. 
Uh, Some early believers chose to live their lives in the harsh elements of the desert. Some ate only grass and some chose to live in solitary confinement for much of their life. Uh, We call this particular way of living, this worldview, asceticism, to just throw a word out there. Uh, One man, Simeon the Stylite, was a 5th century Christian. He chose to live for 37 years Uh, on a small platform on the top of a pillar. That's just some general uh, information for you tonight. Uh, He was someone who also chose the ascetic worldview. But Paul actually says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that in its worst form, such a view that rejects God's good gift is actually in some sense a form of demonic teaching paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And he goes on in verse 3 to highlight that they forbid marriage, these teachers, and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So in its worst forms, asceticism, the the unwarranted rejection of God's good gifts, is both harmful to the person involved and a denial of the gospel, which says that Christ's achievements, not our achievements, justify us. His costly sacrifice, not our acts of sacrifice. So what effect was this no sex in marriage, this celibacy view having in the church. What was it doing among the people of Corinth, the Christians? Well, Paul's words here show us that it was having kind of two uh, major effects. One was that it was exposing those who had signed up to it to a greater sexual temptation. We're going to see that. And the second was that it was neglecting, uh, it was neglecting, the other spouse in the marriage, who at one level was just expected to go along with it. You see, this view was not simply wrong. Paul sees it as actually dangerous and unloving. Now, why do I go into all this context before we actually start looking further at what Paul says? Because I think it's important for us to understand what Paul is actually responding to when he talks about sex in these verses. Uh, Too often I've seen these verses plucked out of their context and just kind of pointed to as if they're some kind of neat summary of everything the Bible has to say about sex. But these verses aren't actually all the Bible has to say about God's good gift of sex. What they are is primarily defense of the proper and right place of sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. So with all that in mind, we're better placed to understand what Paul is telling us about sex in these verses. So let's look at the big corrective to the misconception that it is good to be celibate in marriage. Point two. Now, there are two big reasons Paul gives in the defense of sex uh, within marriage. Uh, One is that it's a help in the fight for holiness, and two is that it's part of a mutual duty to love one another. Uh, Now, when most people think, so first, uh, healthy sexual intimacy in marriage is a help in the fight for holiness. Now, 
When most people think of activities to help them in the fight against sin and to promote holiness in their lives, I suspect most people think of keeping up my Bible reading or keeping up my prayer life or keeping up my church attendance. I'm not sure how many married couples automatically think keeping up my sex life. I have no image for that one. (laughs) But that is what Paul is kind of getting at here. Healthy sexual intimacy in marriage is a help in the fight for holiness in the face of a world saturated with sexual immorality. Now, I say healthy sexual intimacy because there is an unhealthy sexual uh, approach to sex in marriage that can actually be sinful and damaging to holiness. Uh, one spouse forcing or manipulating the other into sex is not helping holiness but hindering it through selfishness and an unloving attitude. Uh, the use of pornographic material within sex That's not helping holiness, that's hindering it. And as I'll highlight soon, the sex spoken of in this passage is always to be understood against the wider backdrop of Paul's and other New Testament writers' words about husbands and wives. The Christian idea of sex in marriage is based on the foundation of love and service that we have come to know for ourselves in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, I return to the first reason Paul offers here, that sex in marriage is a help in the fight against sexual immorality and our fight for holiness as married couples. And you see him make that point in verse 2. Look at it in your Bibles. Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Uh, You can imagine what the advocates of celibacy in the church would have been saying, right? Our approach to, uh, our approach is the more spiritual one, the holier position to take, guys. Well, Paul is actually saying the opposite. If married couples want to take holiness seriously in a world saturated with sexual immorality and temptation, don't be celibate, but make sex a priority in your marriage. Notice that he doesn't say each man and woman can have sexual relations. He says they should have. There is a kind of necessity about this. Now, every believer is called to holiness in the face of sexual immorality. We heard that through chapters 5 and 6, didn't we? Every believer is called to grow in self-control in the face of sexual temptation, Uh, Paul here is simply giving one big practical way to marry couples that will help them in this pursuit. He calls them to channel their their sexual desires, which are a powerful force. We all know that. They can easily go astray. We all know that. To channel those desires into the proper place of one another, your spouse. Now, this isn't a new teaching in the Bible. The wisdom of Proverbs likewise calls married couples to find sexual satisfaction, sexual pleasure, not outside the marriage, but inside their marriage with one another. So you just take uh, Proverbs 6, for example. Let uh, Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving dear, a graceful doe, 
Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? For a man's way is up before the Lord's eyes. He considers all his paths. Find satisfaction in the arms of your spouse, says the author of Proverbs. That will actually help you to avoid sexual sin. Actually, Paul says the same thing again in the second half of verse 5. You might have seen it there where he actually calls married couples to avoid long periods of abstinence in their marriage. Come come together again, Paul says, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan may tempt you. Uh, These words remind us of the seriousness of sexual temptation and the need to take it seriously. Uh, John Piper rightly says that when you battle with sexual temptation, you actually battle against Satan. Not because he creates the desire, but because he so powerfully and deceptively uses the desire. Uh, The battle for holiness is a war, war against Satan. And Christian married couples would be wise to listen to God's counsel here. He is calling you to take his counsel seriously and make healthy sexual intimacy a priority in your marriages. Now, there's just a couple of points of application that I want to touch on at this point. Uh, The first is to make sure that you know what Paul is and isn't saying here. Uh, He is saying that sexual intimacy in marriage is a help. He's not saying it's a cure. It, It doesn't eradicate our sexual temptation and our susceptibility to sin. A help, but not a cure. And sadly, there are a number of devastated and broken spouses who can testify to that truth. Which hopefully reminds those of you who are married here tonight that cultivating self-control in your lives is not just a a singles issue. You too must continue to ask God to grow that fruit of the Spirit in you too. But I'm going to return to that point later. But in most marriages, there will be a difference often in kind of sexual desire and temptation. And so there may be different kind of felt needs for sexual intimacy between the partners. Uh, How does one spouse go about raising that with the other spouse? Well, that's the second part of the application at this point. Uh, Communicate, don't manipulate. Uh, You see, there is a way you could abuse Paul's principle here to manipulate your spouse. Uh, That would be an incorrect use of Scripture. You could say, look, if you don't start having more sex with me, I won't be able to avoid looking at pornography. You don't want that to happen, do you? But you see how that's manipulating? Uh, The way it's framed makes the other person, often the wife, feel totally responsible for the spouse's godliness. Uh, Jonathan Parnell, a U.S. pastor, calls this ultimatum intimacy or blackmail love. Uh, If I don't please my husband sexually, he will have an affair. Uh, That kind of approach is manipulative, wrong, But healthy communication doesn't seek to place the burden 
on the other person. It actually simply raises the issue and invites discussion about a way forward, making sure the other person's needs are also considered. You see, healthy communication will be honest about any desire for more sexual intimacy in the marriage, but it will also give space to discuss the health of the marriage generally. It will actually seek to figure out whether or not there is actually enough of a loving culture in the marriage that your spouse actually desires to have sex. Are you talking well? Are you showing kindness? Are you being patient, tender, helping with the housework? See, all these things contribute to a culture of love in a marriage that actually helps uh, sexual intimacy. Communicate, don't manipulate. Uh, So I've looked at the first big reason Paul gives for married couples to pursue sex in their marriages. It's a help in the fight for holiness. But the second is that it's a duty to love one's spouse. Uh, I don't know about you, but my favorite part of any wedding that I go to is the vows that the husband and the wife make to each other during the ceremony. As a minister who marries people, I sometimes have the privilege, right, of getting an up-close experience of that. They're right there and right there. I love hearing them make that huge promise to love and to cherish one another until they die or Christ returns. But that sums up the the marriage commitment, doesn't it? A lifelong commitment to love the person you have entered into covenant with. Uh, When you marry someone, you kind of take on a new duty in life, a duty to love, to do good to the one you're married to. Uh, Paul is saying in this passage that, that sexual intimacy is one big way a husband and wife fulfill that Uh, marital duty to love one another. And in one sense, it's a form of neglect to deprive one another of that gift. But this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. And you can kind of imagine, right, the scene. A husband comes home uh, from one Sunday afternoon meet-up with some of the other guys from church, and he walks into the kitchen and says to his wife, Look, honey, I've just come back from this really interesting meeting with a few other guys from church, and, you know, these are really spiritual guys. Uh, one of them was saying that the way to show your true devotion to God is actually to avoid all forms of sex, sex in every context. So I was thinking that from now on I'm going to cut out that part of our marriage. How do you think the wife would feel about that? Imagine married couples here, if your spouse came and said that to you. And you might be thinking, okay, well, as the wife, I'm not sure about this, actually. I kind of liked that aspect of our marriage. You see, whether it was the husband or the wife saying this, Paul's response is actually no. Don't make the mistake of thinking, Abstinence is some form of super spiritual duty before God. Your duty before God in this department is to love your wife, love your husband, 
And you see that in verse 3. Look at it in your Bibles. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, this is the wife to the, her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another. Now, these words can seem pretty confronting to a world that is increasingly sceptical of any talk about not having rights over one's body. Uh, the Me Too movement has been loud, uh, a loud voice against sexual misconduct against women and advocating strongly for consent. And that's why we need to understand what Paul is saying here and to see how it's good, not bad. You see, Paul's words do not suggest a husband or a wife has total authority over the body of their spouse. He's not giving a spouse authority to demand sex without consent or to demand sexual acts that are sinful, painful, or demeaning. He's not saying that a spouse has an obligation to give in to such demands. What he is doing is simply highlighting the radical one-flesh nature of marriage, the complete giving of oneself to the other for the good of the other. He's correcting those in Corinth who believe sex in marriage should stop and were thus neglecting to love their spouses sexually. You see, healthy sexual intimacy in marriage brings pleasure to a spouse. It creates a sense of connectedness between the two people. In marriage, sex is a wonderful means by which husbands and wives fulfill their marital vows of loving to one another. Paul's words here remind us that the Christian approach to sex in marriage is always other person centered. This is why Paul speaks in terms of duty to the other. You see, the Christian in all areas of life, including sex, is governed by the Lord Jesus. The one who came into our world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. Now, at a basic level, I think this reminds those of you who are married that in normal circumstances, sexual intimacy should be happening as part of your mutual loving service to one another. But the other person's centeredness of these verses reminds us that it's not just that sex should be happening, but that it should be happening in the right way. Seeking to give, not simply seeking to get. You see, I think we've been entirely conditioned by our sexually selfish culture that we live in uh, when it comes to sex. Our tendency is to think primarily in terms of what I can get, not so much in what I can give. This is what drives, I think, the entire pornography industry. Sexual selfishness. That's why hookup apps like Tinder are so popular. People can just simply swipe through images of real people like they were choices on a menu. This is the cause of so much sexual dissatisfaction in marriage where people are in it for themselves. Married believers are to be different when it comes to sex with our spouse. We are, simply, we are seeking to give, not simply to get. So what does that actually look like in Christian marriage? 
Well, at base level, it actually comes back to communication again, I would say. You actually need to communicate with your spouse to know how best to serve him or her in sexual intimacy. Both husbands and wives need to know what gives the other person pleasure and what doesn't, what helps them in the realm of sexual intimacy and what hinders them. See, if one spouse desires a time of deep conversation to feel comfortable with sex beforehand, well, the other spouse should actually be willing to give that. If one spouse finds a particular aspect of sex uncomfortable, the other person should hear that and avoid it. And one of the things I was told myself uh, by someone else when I was thinking about getting married, and one of the things I, I say now to married couple, uh, to couples who I'm counselling for marriage, uh, is that a good approach to sex as they start to think about their honeymoon is to go as fast as the slowest person. Give, don't just be in it to get. Paul's idea of marital duty, his comments about bodies belonging to each other, is not just simply a call to have sex in marriage. It's a call to have sex in the right, other-person-centered way. And so to those of you who are married among us tonight, maybe this is a good moment to do some self-evaluation. Does your approach to sex suggest that you are more out to get or to give? Does it suggest that you are more out to love your spouse or love yourself? Uh, Paul has given us two big reasons to pursue sexual intimacy in marriage. It's a help in the fight for holiness, and it's part of a spouse's loving duty. Uh, But Paul does give an exception to his general exhortation to pursue sexual intimacy in marriage. And you see it there in verses 5 and 6. Do not deprive one another. That's his general position on the matter. Except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your self, lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. Now, what do we learn about the exception uh, to regular sexual intimacy that's going on here? A few things. Um, one is that both spouses need to agree to it. Two is that it's for a limited time, and three is that it's a concession, not a command. That is, it's like Paul is saying, look, I'm not commanding you to take breaks here, but, you know, if you want to take one, that's fine. Now, are we to to deduce from this, these verses, that the only exception to regular sex in marriage is for couples to devote themselves to focused prayer? Uh, I'm not sure Paul is being exhaustive here. I don't think the text demands that kind of understanding. In fact, the principle of other person's centeredness that runs throughout these verses would actually suggest that there are other very legitimate reasons to take a break from sex in marriage for the good of a spouse. For example, one spouse might be experiencing a time of grief or sickness. A wife might be recovering from childbirth. For the other spouse to insist on sex in such circumstances would actually be unloving, selfish. So there are other real-life examples where sex will need to be paused. Now, in some of these circumstances, the pause on sex may actually need to go on for quite an extended period of time. I'm thinking particularly of times of uh, significant ill health or physical recovery, 
And this is a reminder to us that as much as a help uh, as sexual intimacy is in marriage, it cannot be the only silver bullet in the fight against sexual temptation. Uh, That Paul says it's real during these times of pause, verse 5. And to return to that point I made earlier, this is why married people, not just singles, are called to cultivate self-control in their lives. So what might that actually look like? Or maybe it looks like praying regularly for the Spirit to help you fight that temptation. Maybe it means making wise choices about what you watch, what you read, what you listen to. Maybe it means going to bed with your spouse rather than lingering around late at night on your own with your phone or your computer. Maybe it means inviting other friends into your life uh, to help you, encourage you in this. Uh, There will be exceptions to the pattern of regular sexual intimacy in marriage, and thought needs to be given to what that will look like to what, what it will look like to pursue self-control in those times. Okay, so to recap where we've been, sex within marriage is not something to be avoided, but pursued, says Paul. It's both a help in the fight for holiness and part of a way that a husband and a wife fulfill their marital duty to love and to build one another up. Uh, Paul now turns his attention, just at the end of our Um, reading here, to the unmarried Corinthians who are listening to this letter get read out. And it's almost like Paul kind of anticipates what some people in the church might be saying following his comments about marriage and sex. You kind of think, and can you imagine what people might be saying at this point? You know, see, we told you, you champions of celibacy, that marriage and sex was all good. Paul just said so, didn't he? Paul wants us all to be married and having sex. But notice what Paul says immediately following his words to the married. Notice where his preference lies, verse 7. I wish all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another person has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Uh, Paul's desire, his wish, verse 7, is that people remain as he is, contentedly single. Uh, This option is not bad, it's good, verse 8. Now this immediately flies in the face of much of our culture that views singleness and celibacy as something that is kind of almost inherently wrong and a problem to be fixed. Uh, Oscar Wilde famously said that celibacy is the only known sexual perversion. But Paul is clear that singleness, alongside marriage, is a gift from God. Uh, It's a gift that might only be around for a time, might change, uh, but it's a gift nonetheless. Uh, Part of the problem is that uh, in many kind of contexts, singleness is kind of spoken about, thought of, as kind of like the gift that no one wants to receive, Kind of like a pair of hideous socks that you know will just go straight to the drawer for all time. Yet Paul does speak of singleness as a really good thing. 
Uh, Later in this chapter, Paul will speak about the way in which singleness gives room for an undistracted devotion to the Lord. But we're actually going to think more about uh, the why of that in a couple of weeks' time when Paul actually speaks more about singleness. So I'm going to save that discussion for then in verses 25 and following. So singleness is a good option, but so is marriage, says Paul, especially for those of you who are struggling to keep, especially for those who are struggling to keep their sexual desire under control, verse 9. For them it is better to marry than to burn with desire, Paul says. Now again, we'll continue to think more about Paul's words to the unmarried in two weeks, but just for now I want to finish by briefly thinking through some of the application from verse 9, uh, uh, which, you know, many people, kind of one of those verses that many people know. Uh, should you get married if you're struggling with self-control sexually? Uh, well, in many ways the answer to that question will de- depend on your circumstances and the way other biblical principles come into play. Uh, For example, if you're a 17-year-old boy or girl struggling with self-control, marriage probably isn't the answer. Not because it's not a help in the area of sexual temptation. Paul says it is. We can't deny his words. But because it's simply just not wise and practical for you right now. See, the Bible also speaks of the need to love the person that you marry with a servant-hearted, in a servant-hearted way like Christ, Ephesians 5. And that actually requires a certain level of maturity that by and large takes time to develop. The Bible speaks about the need for people to earn a living financially and provide for their household. Again, something that is kind of hard to pull off when you're at school or studying even. Uh, Now, they're just a couple of big factors that the Scriptures also want you to take into consideration. There are others. But to ignore other principles and to rush into marriage may actually well create more problems than it solves for you. That's not the case for everyone. For others of you, the answer may well be to get married and not to delay. Again, this will take wisdom to discern, but it's always good for us not to try and be smarter than Scripture on this point. If Scripture says that it is better to marry than to burn, uh, we have to take that seriously and see it as God's good counsel to us. So again, this doesn't mean that we ignore real issues or real problems in our relationship and just go and get married anyway because, you know, sexual urges. But it does mean that where marriage is a real and good option and where you find yourselves enduring real and challenging sexual desire, getting married is a good thing. Not delaying is a good thing. Uh, This is a good reminder, I think, for those of you who are already engaged or dating and thinking about engagement. Maybe don't have that hugely long engagement period Uh, if it means that you will continue to burn with desire in an unhelpful way. You see, it's actually better to honour God rather than have that perfect wedding day that takes two years to prep for. It's better to honour God and get married in winter than wait for the flowers of spring to bloom. It is better to marry than to burn with desire.
Uh, Tonight, God's word has helped us think about sex in its proper place of marriage. It's good because it's both a help in the fight for holiness and an act of love to one's spouse. Uh, But I suspect that for some of us here, this topic brings up all sorts of difficult emotions. Uh, Some of you might be feeling disappointment over desire not yet realised. Some of you might be feeling anger over the way you have been sinned against sexually. Others might be feeling grief or guilt over the way you know you have sinned sexually. Uh, That's why I just want to finish by directing your eyes to the Lord Jesus, uh, the one who was himself single and celibate, yet on in marriage, the one who promises to bring all sin, including sexual sin, to account on the last day, the one who gave up his own body to death on a cross to cleanse us from the guilt of sexual sin and give us new life in him. Whether you're married or unmarried, I would encourage you to entrust your life, your emotions, and your future into Jesus' good hands because he understands, he helps, and he saves. I'm going to pray now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Help us to be conformed to it in our thinking about sex and marriage. Uh, May we not think about sex as something that is bad or dirty or wrong, but see it as one of your good gifts given to strengthen and protect the bond of marriage. Help all of us, married or unmarried, to entrust our lives to the Lord Jesus, knowing that he loves us, that he has saved us, and that he lives now to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.